Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Let me say something about our distinguished lecturer. Paula Fredrickson is the William Goodwin Aurelio Professor of the Appreciation of Scripture at Boston University. She's a renowned authority in her field and has published widely in the social and intellectual histories of ancient Christianity from the late Second Temple period to the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Besides translating two of Augustine's earlier commentaries on Paul, she's authored From Jesus to Christ, for which she won the 1988 Yale Governor's Award for Best Book, and which was the basis of a popular frontline documentary, as well as Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, which won a 1999 National Jewish Book Award. She's also co-edited and contributed to two important collections of essays, Jesus, Judaism, and Christian Anti-Judaism, Reading the New Testament After the Holocaust, and a second one called On the Passion of the Christ, which concerns Mel Gibson's controversial film and which was published by the University of California Press. Her most recent book, a copy of which I urge you to buy, is the magisterial work entitled Augustine and the Jews, A Christian Defense of Jews and Judaism. Please join me in welcoming Paula Fredrickson. It's um, sometimes a little difficult to try to sum up in 40 minutes the uh, conclusions that I came to after wrestling with the particular angel of Augustine's views on Jews and Judaism for what turned out to be 15 years when I tried to remember the difference between when I first got the idea and when I finally held uh, the book in my hands, which was only a few weeks ago. The title might give you the impression that what the book is about is Augustine's deep innermost feelings about some of his best friends who might have been Jewish. That's not what the book is about. The book is about how Augustine read the Bible. And it's a res- as a result of how he read the Bible that he came to the religious conclusions that he did about Jews and Judaism. But it was also because Jews not only are an idea in Christian theology, given that the greater part of Christian scripture is the Jewish scripture, the um, Old Testament part of the Christian Bible, Jews are not only a theological idea within Christianity, Jews are actual people. They were actually neighbors and fellow residents of Roman North Africa when Augustine was a bishop. And Augustine lived at a turning point in Roman history where with Constantine's idea to become a patron of one particular church denomination, that particular denomination became empowered to have a say about Roman policy toward other communities. As a result, more Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire after the conversion of Constantine than before because 
the Christian bishops uh, who were members of that community whom Constantine patronized were sure to provide the emperor and his, uh, his governing magistrates with the names of those bishops they really would not want to have in their town. It was not a, a great moment for interfaith dialogue, starting with just intersectarian conversations between different types of Christians. In 399, which was uh, five years after Augustine had become uh, bishop in Hippo in North Africa, the Christian emperor moved to begin to shut down pagan temples. This was another moment that Augustine um, was unconflicted about. He thought that shutting down pagan temples was a good thing. He, again, resting upon this rich language of condemnation for idol worship that that came to him through the uh, Jewish traditions in the Old Testament, he thought that the government was doing a, a good thing. But the 4th century Roman Empire never persecuted Jews. Jews were not at risk for the practice of their own ancestral traditions, precisely because those traditions were ancestral and they were, in a sense, grandfathered in when the church that won Constantine's support was the church that also had an Old Testament. Nonetheless, it was a complicated relationship between the idea of Jews and the actual Jews um, present in the Roman Empire, who were themselves citizens of the empire, because of the negative role that Jews and Judaism often played in the construction of Christian identity. Jews were an idea Orthodox Christians thought with when they tried to define what they thought was best in themselves by producing a negative image of everything they didn't want to be and attributing that to uh, rhetorical Jews or theological Jews. So we have an extremely, almost a, a radioactively toxic language in, among Christian theologians for the ways that they speak about Jews which goes back to the ways that they read the Passion narratives in their Gospels, the way that they understood Paul's letters, and the way that they even understood the Old Testament, where um, God and his prophets are constantly wringing their hands and complaining that the Jews are stiff-necked, not listening, not doing it the right way, and always doing uh, the wrong thing. So Jews stood as a a counter-image the way, for example, I am the survivor of three teenage daughters, who the last one of which has now entered her 20s. And one of the the big ideas for the construction of identity when it's fragile is to say whom you're not like, uh, which is usually the person you're most like. I'm not like you, mom. Um, Of course, they're all, now that they're ripe old uh, in their 20s, they're beginning to realize that they are maybe a little bit like me, but only by accident. It's the same kind of relationship, precisely because of the family closeness, that we get with the rhetoric, the negative rhetoric about Jews. The amazing thing about Augustine is while he is in the thick of this political moment where the, the Christian Roman government is embarking upon the principled persecution of religious minorities. Augustine 
for theological reasons, because of the way he reads the Bible, comes up with a completely different theological Christian understanding of the roles of Jews and Judaism in the salvation of the world. And as a result of that completely new understanding, he invents a language and a theology of Judaism that actually ends up protecting real Jewish lives, actually saving Jews when the social quality of the Western Roman Empire disintegrates under the pressure of barbarian invasions and with the rise of the much more violent culture of the Middle Ages. It's in the Middle Ages that this theological idea that Augustine had happily is applied socially by other churchmen educated in the Augustinian tradition so that real Jewish lives are saved. And that's really the story I want to um, share with you tonight. And if you look at our handout, what I'd like to do is present the story by pre- presenting the strong contrast between Paul, who is uh, in the original apostolic generation, in the same generation of Jesus, and Paul will be the text whom, uh, which Augustine will use most of all when he is coming to his own interpretation of Jews and Judaism. As a quick preface to Paul, I'd like to begin at Genesis 1. So fasten your seatbelt. The Bible does not begin with Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is Lech Lecha, the, the calling of Abraham, the beginning of the birth of Israel as a nation. The Bible begins with creation. It begins with Genesis 1. And if we think of the organization of biblical books according to the Jewish order, not according to the what will later be the Christian order, but the Jewish order of books, which Jewish congregations refer to as Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. What we see in the way those books are organized, the way they develop a continuous narrative, a story about God's relationship with his creation, we see it going in two cycles. The first is a cycle that begins with Genesis and ends at, um, in the last book of the first five books, it ends at Deuteronomy, where God has predicted to Abraham that his descendants will be slaves in a land not theirs, and then the rest of the story from Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is about the redemption from Egypt and the realization of God's promises of redemption ends is given a a narrative finish um, when the children of Israel, all those descendants of Abraham, stand at the east bank of the Jordan, ready to go into the promised land. And that's the completion of that cycle. But the Tanakh goes on to tell the story and provide the literature of what becomes a second cycle of um, enslavement and redemption. And that begins with the story of um, the rise of the kingship, the monarchy, the foundation of Jerusalem, 
as a center for the worship of Israel's God, the foundation of the Davidic monarchy, and then the story of the exile. And with the story of the exile, particularly the exile in Babylon, there is the promise that God will bring the people back to the land. So that in the way that the Bible ends according to the Jewish order, the last book in the Bible, if you look at it as Tanakh, is Second Chronicles. And the last line is spoken by Cyrus, the king of Persia, who gives permission to the children of Israel to go back home, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and to worship their God. So that the, in the Hebrew text, the very last word of the Hebrew Bible is ya'al, go up, go back, go home. And that completes the second narrative cycle of that concept of redemption. An idea of salvation that had begun really um, politically, historically, nationally, territorially gets um, amplified enormously and projected onto the cosmos in the period of Jewish history, particularly between minus 200 and plus 200. There's a particular interpretive arc. We put the Dead Sea Scrolls in that period. We put most of the New Testament writings in that period. There are lots of um, apocryphal writings in that period. And there's where the idea of redemption gets projected onto the whole cosmos. And the idea of redemption and salvation comes to mean a kind of redemption from history, not just a coming back home, a coming into the land, but the idea of the defeat of evil the way the elements of this story come into play is by taking seriously the moral qualities of the biblical God, the main two of which is that he is merciful and that he is just. And this just and merciful God will not tolerate evil indefinitely. God will not permit history to drift so that if the signs of the time, if you know how to read them, are particularly bad, that means that God is about to step in and intervene in history. This is, of course, precisely the atmosphere that gives rise to various kinds of messianic speculation and various types of visions of not only the redemption of the children of Israel, the redemption of them from exile, but also the idea of the resurrection of the dead, which is God's chance to make good on his promises to even the lost generations. And not only the redemption of Israel, but then also, this I, Jews think big, and the biblical God certainly thinks very, very big, um, also the redemption of the nations who, once Israel is redeemed from exile, the nations will be redeemed from their enslavement and worship of, their enslavement to and worship of false gods, the gods of, of their ancestors, and instead they'll turn and worship Israel's God. It's within that religious mood of Jewish apocalyptic hope that um, we locate the letters of Paul. So if you, again, look at your handout, Paul provides us with the earliest evidence of the Christian movement. It's 
a moment where Christianity is a particularly radioactive type of Messianic Judaism. And Paul writes in the year around mid-century after he's been a, a member of this movement for almost 20 years. And he writes in the conviction that he's even more correct now than he was when he first joined the movement and that God is about to bring history to an end through the return of his son. Paul is convinced that this is the case, that he knows what time it is on God's clock because of two things. One, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that he himself has seen the risen Christ and that resurrection is it's not a one-off thing. Christ, in a sense, represents the first swallow of spring. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then he is the first of the resurrection of the entire dead. And Paul says that if you don't believe in the general resurrection of all the dead, then you can't believe uh, that Christ has been raised either. So he's, on the one hand, he knows what time it is on God's clock. What time is it? It's almost time for the general resurrection of the dead. And the other way, by around the year 50, he knows what time it is on God's clock, is because he thinks he's seen something of a miracle. Pagans who have been um, loosely affiliated members of synagogue communities in the diaspora have been able, once Paul has preached to them, to make an exclusive commitment to worship only the God of Israel. And Paul sees that as, again, and he, has, he can go to Isaiah for his biblical evidence of this, the turning of the nations, their destruction of their idols, and their turning to worship the God of Israel is, again, one of those things that mark the eschatological end time. So if you look uh, at our first page, I just uh, that's a harvest of four quick citations from Paul's letters. The uh, first is the earliest one we have from him. All Paul's letters are addressed to um, pagan communities, not uh, Jewish ones. In First Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's this idea that not only that Jesus came once and he was crucified and he was raised, but as a result of his raise, in essence, we're changing that double uh, spiral of, of redemption narratives and putting it like this instead. He, he came down, he died, he was raised, and he's going to come down again, which will mark the general resurrection of the dead and the defeat of evil. Um, again, First Thessalonians the living and dead will rise to join Christ when he descends from heaven with a cry of command and the archangels call and the sound of the trumpet of God. It's a nice galloping iambic pentameter. It's, it's Jesus at coming the way a Messiah was supposed to have come the first time, but he's going to come that way um, the second time. And Paul says, and we who are alive will be caught uh, up with him. Um, my citation from 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about um, who inherits the kingdom of God, and he says un the unrighteous and the sinful will not. He reminds his community that the time has grown uh, very short. Um, and then he gives a description of what uh, Christ's uh, wrap-up is going to be like when he defeats all the powers of evil. 
and then all the dead will be raised and the living will be transformed. And then he says, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. And in the last letter we have from him, in Romans 13, he tells this congregation, almost as if he's reminding them, though he hasn't been to Rome yet, you know how late the hour is. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's within this context that Paul speaks of the redemption of everybody in Romans. But there's an awkward problem already by mid-first century, which is that most of Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, he says, his suginoi, literally his, uh, the people are, who are his tribe, a lot of them aren't convinced that Paul's right, even though Paul is. So he begins in Romans, this last letter that he writes, um, by lamenting that most of his kinsmen don't believe. And then he defines Israel in two ways, Israel of the flesh and Israel of the promise. And he reviews three ways in the Bible that God works in history because history is the particular medium of the God of Israel. He mentions how um, the child of the promise was only Isaac. Ishmael wasn't um, the child through whom the promise of redemption passed, but only to Isaac. And even in the case where um, children have not only the same father, but also the same mother, the story of Rebekah, only uh, Jacob is chosen and not Esau. And also he mentions that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his purpose might be fulfilled, that all his, his name will be proclaimed on all the earth. We're now on the second side of the handout. His point in reviewing this is to talk about how God uses humans in history and how history is where God acts. And then he asks in Romans 11, has God rejected his people, his people being Israel? And Paul, um, who doesn't suffer from low self-esteem, points to himself as an obvious case. Of course he hasn't rejected Israel for uh, one thing. I myself am an Israelite. And then Paul explains something that for him is such an anomaly because what's occurring is so obviously the realization of the promises that are plainly in the Jewish Bible that the only way he can explain why most Jews don't understand that Paul is right is that God himself is intervening so that they will not understand. He says here, at the present time, a remnant has been chosen by grace, referring to himself and other Jews who are part of this first generation of the movement. But he continues, I want you to understand a mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of pagans comes in so that all Israel will be saved. That's the thought. And by the time we get to the end of Romans, even though Paul in his other letters says sinners won't get into the kingdom of God and the unrighteous won't get into the kingdom of God, by Romans 11, it's like the fourth movement of the Ninth Symphony. 
everybody, everybody is included, and um, it's, a, it's a, the big picture and the happy ending. So Paul is, in other words, making the statement that for the time being, which is very short, God has hardened Israel, and his decision to harden Israel is strategic and temporary. He's doing it just so that Paul and other Jews like him can run around and talk to uh, the full number of pagans, and then at a certain point, um, it will all turn around. So Jewish uh, disinterest in the gospel is actually a gracious miracle that God is working precisely to promote the mission to the Gentiles. Let's flash forward a few centuries. By the year 399, which is this, this year that um, the Roman emperor decides to shut down pagan temples and when there has been um, an ongoing um, action against different sects of Christianity, Augustine has been working against other Christian heretics, the Manichees. He had been a member of uh, this Manichaean heretical sect for 12 years. So he knew the theology of this sect cold. This sect held that the God of the Jews was an evil God, a God who uh, promoted uh, procreation of children. He was always saying things like, be fruitful and multiply, which was a yucky thing to say in the 4th century when sexual asceticism was something that had uh, the best and the brightest attracted. Uh, the Jewish God was um, always ordering conquest. He really he had a thing about sacrifice of animals. All of these things that the Manichees indicated that he was could not possibly be the father of Jesus Christ, who had to be a different God. And in other words, the Manichees, as with so many other forms of Gentile Christianity, the Manichees, using the Old Testament, constructed an extremely demeaning caricature of Jews as a way to describe what they saw as was best in themselves as, as redeemed Christians. Augustine was a master of this theology. He was a very successful Manichaean um, missionary. And when he changed, um, he came into a more sophisticated version of the type of Christianity he had been raised in back in Africa. And what he discovers is that the anti-Jewish rhetoric of his new church and the anti-Jewish rhetoric of his old church, the Manichees are also Christians, are pretty much exactly the same. It was a little bit more difficult for Orthodox Christians because they maintained that the God of the Jews was the father of Jesus Christ. But then they explained that when God gave the commandments or God through Christ gave the commandments of Israel, when God said, circumcise your children, he was really talking about a spiritual thing, not a physical act. When God said, uh, don't eat shellfish, he was really giving a type of allegory about certain types of things. He wasn't talking about anything as small as how you live your life. He was giving a kind of coded spiritual message. And as a result of this conviction, Orthodox Christians were also able to use pretty much the same verses in the Old Testament that heretical Christians did to construct 
um, this this vision of this this opposite vision of themselves. This is the reading of the Bible that Augustine rejects. And this is the construction of Jews that Augustine rejects. In the year 399, he writes a massive book against his former teacher, the heretic Faustus. He presents it as if it is a debate, though Faustus has been dead for several years by the time Augustine writes this. It's for those of you in the audience old enough to remember when uh, telephone books were hard copy, the, this treatise is about the size of the Manhattan phone directory. It's not a short read. It's not as long as the City of God, but it's long. And what he does in the course of this is take apart the Manichaean reading of the Old Testament and the Manichaean construction of Jews, but at the same time he takes apart the construction of Jews that had been part of Catholic tradition as well. And this is what he says. He says that the Jewish understanding of Judaism was religiously correct. That when God said, don't eat shellfish and pork, he really did intend to say something about what you eat. And that when God said, circumcise your sons on the eighth day, God really did mean circumcise your sons on the eighth day. He wasn't speaking only in allegories. Whatever else God might have intended allegorically, and Augustine, as with any um, educated ancient person, and certainly as anybody as, as brilliant and creative as himself, he can conjure literally an infinite number of allegorical meanings from a text, but he insists the text of the Bible also has to be understood what he calls literally, by which he means historically, so that God himself gave the law to Israel, and Israel interpreted it, here comes the phrase, according to the flesh. And instead of that being a bad thing, it was precisely a good thing, because the author of flesh is God. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with flesh. So that the Jewish fleshly understanding of the commandments was exactly what God had intended. And when God praises Israel for doing the law, he's not speaking ironically. He really means it. That's already... um, If that had been all that he had said, dienu, but he goes on. He says that, furthermore, that Jesus and Paul, and in fact, all of the original disciples, were themselves observant Jews. Jesus was an observant Jew all throughout his life, he argues, and Paul and the apostles were observant Jews, including after the resurrection of Jesus. More than that, he says, the first generation of Gentiles who joined the church Judaized. They themselves kept kosher as a way for the community to be knit together so that they could could be together. And that, at this point, we have the the fourth-century equivalent of an email correspondence between Jerome and Augustine and Jerome got apoplectic at this. He thought it was an insult to Christianity to say that Jesus was Jewish. 
And Augustine, who's his junior, faces him down and, and insists on this. And it's, it's the patristic quest for the historical Jesus, and Augustine is, is the author of this. But finally, and even more um, radically, Augustine insists that his Jewish contemporaries, and who knows how he knows or what he knows about what his actual Jewish contemporaries are doing, but he says that Jews since that generation are also correct to keep the Sabbath, to keep kosher, to keep the Jewish holidays in a Jewish way, because, he says, God himself is the author of Jewish practice, not just the author of Jewish books, but the author of the Jewish practices of the laws that are in those books. And furthermore, he says, looking at the story in Genesis 4, where God and Cain have their unhappy dialogue after the murder of Abel. God puts the mark of Cain on Cain's head in order to protect him. In colloquial English, a mark of Cain sounds like it's a mark of shame. But if you look at the Bible, that's not what it is. What it is is a mark of protection. And Augustine states there that the mark that God put on the Jews who are vis-a-vis Christ, the, the, the older sibling who kills the younger sibling, the Jews killed Christ, but God puts his mark on the Jews to protect them so that any monarch, whether that monarch is pagan or Christian, will receive the sevenfold curse by which God protected Cain when he put his mark on them. And the mark that God puts on the Jews is precisely Jewish practice. So it's the very Jewishness of Jews that protects them, that marks them off to emperors as being a divinely protected population, precisely because they are still the Jewish people when everybody else in the Roman Empire has taken on, um, taken on the practices of Rome. Well, this... This sounds nice, but what about Jews at the end of time? And here is where Augustine looks precisely at that line in Romans, where Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And Augustine has to redefine what the term Israel means because he says, all Jews will not be saved. The Israel that is saved, he says, is the Israel who believes in God. So it's the, those who believe in Christ from among the Jews and those who believe in Christ from among the Christians who will be saved, but all Jews by themselves will not be saved. And I, what I've copied out for you here is the passage where he tries to explain why this is the case. He's, he's set this um, treatise up as a dialogue. This is, again, from the, the Contra Faustum in 399. Um, why is Israel still blind? Why, why do Jews still not understand that um, Augustine is right and Paul was right? And if it's because God himself has hardened their hearts, which is what Paul says, then how can Jews possibly be held uh, morally culpable for not being Christians if God himself prevents them from becoming uh, Christians? And he has this 
uh, questioner asked, in what ways have the Jews sinned if God was the one who blinded them so that they did not know Christ? And this is his answer. The penalty of this blindness that afflicts the Jews is just, since it is a punishment for secret sins known only to God. He does not say that Jews are guilty of having killed Christ. They did kill Christ, but there is no guilt involved in that, which is, again, a radical departure from traditional Christian theology. Since they did not know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jews are not culpable of killing the Messiah. So what are they culpable of? And Augustine says, God only knows. But he means by that, only God knows. But they must be guilty of something or else they would be saved. And since they're not saved because they're still Jews, they must be guilty of something. But Augustine doesn't know what. And we would demonstrate that both the apostle, which, by which he means Paul, and the prophets have spoken about precisely this sort of situation, the judgment of secret sins. For this reason, Paul says, God gave them up to the lust of their own heart, to an immoral mind, so that they would act in ways that were not fitting. And he's quoting Paul chapter 1, where Paul is lamenting about what horrible moral material he has to work with among pagans, and he's saying that that's a description of Jews. Augustine's a lot like the rabbis, where he will just take a sentence out of, completely out of context and use it for something else if he's trying to get um, to a point. In saying this, Paul wishes to teach that public obvious sins occur as the penalty for prior hidden sins, but lest the Jews use their not recognizing Christ as an excuse, the prophet immediately goes on to show that the Jews not recognizing Christ was itself the just penalty for something that they had secretly earned. In other words, says Augustine, Israel's hardening is punitive. It's not strategic, which is what Paul had said. And Israel's hardening is abiding. It's not provisional and temporary, as Paul had said. This has moved some reviewers of my book to remark grumpily that Augustine really isn't that good for the Jews after all. I mean, what fun is it if a church father says that the Jews um, aren't saved? And uh, that's why I include the last um, bit here on your handout. Augustine says, not only are the Jews not saved, he says most of the Christians aren't saved either. Almost nobody is saved according to Augustine's stringent theology. Most of humanity is damned. And he goes back to the image in Paul of God, it's very familiar from the, the um, Yom Kippur Maksar, of, of God as a potter, and humanity is clay, and God shapes the pot as he will. And the word for the blob of clay on the, on the potter's wheel is masa. And as you see here, Augustine glosses that to be the masa damnata. Most of humanity after Adam is in this literally a lump, a lump of sin, a lump of all of humanity has fallen. And it's from that lump of fallen humanity that God, for reasons known only to himself, will pinch off a saved person here and a saved person there. But for the most part, not only are Jews, but also 
Gentiles, including Christian Gentiles, including Catholic Gentiles, are also not among the saved. Heaven is not going to be, or Augustine's heaven is not going to be very crowded. If you look at our last um, quotation, it's from the City of God. So this is an idea he's repeating toward the end. He dies in 430. This is written around 428. Again, looking back to Romans 9, the whole of mankind is a condemned lump. For he who committed the first sin, Adam, was punished, and along with him all the stock which has its roots in him. The result is that there is no escape for anyone from this justly deserved punishment except by merciful and undeserved grace. God saves completely as a gift. Many more are condemned by vengeance than are released by mercy. And lest any of you think that Augustine just sounds like another grouchy 4th century church father, I will remind you of um, the scene of his death which his biographer recorded where the last four days of his life, Augustine had a fever, requested to be left alone, had four penitential psalms copied out, poster-sized, hung on the wall so he could read them from his bed, and would allow somebody to come in simply to give him water. But he spent the last four days of his life thinking about his own sins. He was repenting because he was going to the God that he had constructed. Augustine, just because he was a bishop, just because he had spent his entire adult life working for the well-being of the church, and um, just because he had published the equivalent, this as a professor, I really am astonished by this, just because he had published the equivalent of a 300-page book once a year, every year, for the last 40 years of his life without a computer, He didn't presume that he himself was saved either. So, does this mean that Augustine was good for the Jews? In his own lifetime, Jews were not in danger of being persecuted. But because of this teaching, which came together because of the reasons particular to the 4th century, Augustine left behind a teaching that in the crueler, later, bloodier days of the Middle Ages, would actually be invoked by Christian churchmen to prevent the slaughter of Jews in medieval Europe. And that's the story I wanted to tell you tonight. Thank you. The Augustinian scholars of the the Reformation period, uh, including particularly Martin Luther, uh, was very found the uh, es- eschatological parts of the Bible very distasteful. And in fact, um, the big defect of mainline Protestant Christianity is that it has really no theology of the end time revelation, precisely because of Luther and, and Calvin was pretty much the same. They poo pooed it. So that slack is being taken up by these knuckle draggers from Arkansas. Um, but uh, could you contrast how Orthodox Christianity meaning, you know, like Russian Orthodox, Father Thomas Hopko and those guys. Uh, you know, how, could you just contrast this Augustinian view of Israel, which of course is actually 
there's a hundred different versions of it, depending on who you talk to. But nevertheless, there's a sort of a common thread of Augustinian appreciation of this kind of Pauline uh, entitlement for Israel. We all kind of have to respect that, no matter how freaked out we are about what's been going on for the past couple months. We all feel Israel is special. How do they feel, you know, in, in Russian Orthodox, in, in the three different... I remind you that I am much more at home in 4th century Rome than I am in um, 21st century Russia. Um, but the, the question is really, you asked two different questions. One is about the privileging of Israel as a theological concept within Christianity of whatever stripe. And the second uh, point you mentioned was about eschatology, which is, again, one of the shop words for this, this vivid belief that the world is coming to an end. One of the reasons Augustine came to his conclusions about this extremely restricted salvation um, is because he, he isn't staying up late at night waiting for Jesus to come back either. He makes uh, very strong arguments against that type of temperament. He favors the other passages, which Paul also has, in which the Gospels say that um, you can't calculate when the end is, and so on. And as a result of that, he's dealing with a, a more static picture. And uh, for that reason, there's a kind of break in the dramatic thrust of the story, and you end up with this static slice of who's, who's saved and who's damned. I should add that um, those of you who are familiar with rabbinic writings, Mishnah Sanhedrin 10, there's a very similar move where the Mishnah says, all Israel has a place in the world to come. And then there's immediately a list of the exceptions uh, who turn out to be those who disagree with what the rabbis are saying. So it's, it's once you let go of a kind of eschatological drama, there's not as much of a thrust toward the big happy ending, and that's part of it. Um, Augustine isn't an authoritative figure in uh, the Greek East, and he doesn't... Um, have anywhere near the influence that um, somebody like John Chrysostom, his contemporary, who wrote terrible sermons. That's really the question. And, and can you tell us what what do they what do those folks think about all this? Uh, standing on Lake, what do Orthodox Christians, Greek Orthodox, yeah, and Russian yeah, Orthodox if they don't Christians? Have the Augustinian influence. They're going to have a vastly different theology. Well, it's, it's Christian, it? so it's not, I mean, there are things that are alike and things that are different, but uh, Chrysostom was in one of those, wrote in 4th century Antioch, um, apparently his was a happy interfaith neighborhood, everybody was happy but him, um, because we have this series of sermons that come from right around the Jewish high holidays in the fall, where he's being, it's a little bit like yelling at the, at the students who are in your class, about the students who are skipping the class. He's yelling at his, his um, congregation who is in the church about the members of the congregation who have skipped church because they're at the Yom Kippur service or because they're helping friends build a, a sukkah. So there he is complaining against the effects of Judaism on Christians, and it's those sermons that end up going into the bloodstream of uh, Eastern traditions of Christianity, and it's a much more negative, it's a much more negative strain. Thank you for your question. Yes? I've understood that um, the Greeks and maybe even Plato had a big influence on Paul. Um, is, this, is there any influence that maybe Augustine had also by relationships to Stoicism or Greek philosophy? What, what kind of... Um, Classical Greek pagan philosophy has influenced both Paul and also Augustine? Well, more like the Stoicism and asceticism of, of the Greeks of uh, 
denying pleasure? Because Paul was part, wasn't he related to the Greeks? Yeah, he was, he was a, a Greek-thinking Jew. Did that have an influence? Sure. Sure. The fact that the fact that August, that Paul was reading, Paul stands in a different biblical tradition from Jesus's. Jesus would have understood the Bible in Hebrew or in Aramaic. Paul's first biblical tradition is is the Greek Bible, and the Greek Bible is a different text. A translated text interprets the text. A trans, for example. Um, the historical Jesus wouldn't have known that Isaiah 7.14 said anything about the Messiah's mother being a virgin because in his text it would have said young girl. There are significant differences between the, the Jewish Greek translations and the, and the Jewish Hebrew translations. Um, Paul himself would have been, um, since he had a, a reasonable Greek education, he, some influence. I mean, he privileges spirit over matter. He spirits, he um, privileges um, uh, order over disorder. All of those types of cultural tropes are, are standard to the type of Greek knowledge that he also draws on. But that has already affected the Bible because Alexander the Great walks through the Middle East in minus 300. And from that point on, Hellenization affects every um, tradition it bumps into. There are more or there are greater and lesser degrees of Hellenization, but Greek thought is very important with Augustine in particular and with the, uh, the intellectual and well-educated pagans who renounced paganism for a Christianity that they began to create in the second century and the third century. You can't do theology without using philosophy. You can't do it. It's... Um, the same way that you have to use mathematics in order to do physics. Theology is a philosophical discipline, and all sorts of ideas from, uh, that's, that's the mental furniture of the intellectual culture. And so all of those, all of those ideas uh, come in again and again and again. And again, an interesting place where um, Augustine uh, insults the Greek philosophy that he himself draws on although only in Latin translation, is he insists on the resurrection of the flesh, even though um, it's only the spirit of the soul that's the um, eternal part, according to Platonism, and the flesh is something the body unzippers and steps out of at death. But Augustine, because he's a biblical theologian, will insist on physical resurrection, uh, even though it makes nonsense of a lot of the other physics and philosophy of the city of God. So... Please. I, two questions. I, uh, first of all, thank you very, very much for a fine presentation. Um, question number one. All, or at least most, theology is experiential. Um, you mentioned that, and maybe I didn't hear, that, that Augustine wouldn't have known what the Jews of his time was doing, were doing. But did he have contact with Jews? Or is the you know, the late fourth already too late for that kind of uh, that kind of contact? Um, and if he hadn't, where did he get the notion, you know, to have Rachmanus on on the Jews? Secondly, is oh, there... but that's such a good question. Is the other good? <laughs> is the other question is good? You'll have to judge. Okay. Oh. You can just disregard it if it's not. Um, oh, but I really want to answer the first question first. Can I do that, please? I just a, have to tell only you. Only if I can have a follow-up. Okay, okay go ahead. All right. No, but this, it's great. 
Um, there's a real estate deal that goes wrong um, in North Africa. We don't know the date, but there are letters of Augustine's that have been lost that were found about 25 years ago. And among these letters, so we can't actually date them, there's a correspondence between Augustine and an, another bishop. Because Augustine, since he was a bishop, his, his job was being a magistrate and administering justice. It was an alter, sort of like small claims court. It was an alternative to going to one of the imperial courts where you had to have a lot more money and a lot more lawyers. Excuse the redundancy. And so he has this case where he writes this memo back to one of his bishops saying that a man had come to him, produced a dossier of documents, and complained that the second bishop had defrauded him of land by purchasing land from his mother, but the mother didn't own the land. The son did. And the son produced titles to the property, and um, and so Augustine is writing to Victor, this other bishop, and he tells Victor, he slaps his hand very nicely. He said, you know, if you thought that it was legal to run the legal owner of land off his property, um, that's not legal, in fact. And he goes on and on and on and about how if the man pursues charges, Victor's going to lose. And... If it weren't for a single word that Augustine includes in the first line of the letter, we wouldn't know that the plaintiff was a Jew. So this Jewish layman, Licinius, goes to Augustine seeking redress over real estate uh, in this tangle with this other bishop, and Augustine tells his bishop to get his sticky hands off of Licinius's property. I can't even imagine that happening in... um, uh, in the Middle Ages, I just can't. This is still a civil society where everybody stands under the um, under the same law. And uh, the second thing, I mean, you can tell when Augustine. First of all, Carthage was one of the great Jewish settlements in the West after Rome. Augustine had spent some time in Rome. I don't know how many Jews are in Milan, but he talks about different Jewish things that are going on um, in different cities in North Africa, there was an embarrassment when a new Latin translation of the Bible showed up and the congregation liked the old Latin translation better. So the bishop has to appeal to the Jews and say, is this the right translation? And guess what? Some Jews say yes, some Jews say no. So there are real Jews there and we get glimmers, but it's much more like, it's almost as if our documents are a rear view mirror and we're trying to see what's going on over here. You don't have Tons and tons of evidence, but you do have that one nice piece of evidence. Okay, your second question. Wasn't that a good story, though? Uh, Yeah, I'm glad I asked the question. Um, It's related. You fast-forwarded through three centuries to get from Paul to Augustine. Is there a line of development in the patristic literature coming from Paul or Paul's time that would be a precursor to Augustine's View of the Jews, or is it, does it just break on onto the scene out of nowhere? <clears throat> and 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 out of that, <clears throat> excuse me, is there is there a line that can be traced from Augustine to the use of Augustinian texts to protect Jews in the in the Middle Ages, or is it, then again, it's just something that the bishops at that time occasionally will pull off a shelf. Is, is there a tradition here, or is it something that breaks into out of nowhere and then comes up? Um, Episodically. Um, Okay, I'm sorry. The first question was, is there anything like Augustine? There's a kind of, um, as biblical scholarship gets better, 
In the third century, there's a great Greek um, church father named Origen, Origen of Alexandria, and he um, is reading the Gospels uh, carefully. And he knows, I mean, in the Gospels, Jesus is, where is Jesus inevitably every Shabbat? He's in synagogue. Um, the Gospels have Jesus wearing tzitzit, wearing the fringes that um, religious Jews wear uh, in the corners of their garments. They have uh, Jesus performing animal sacrifices or going up to the temple to do those sacrifices during the, the festivals. And Origen says that Jesus was a Jew. But he says only, um, only in his lifetime. And then after the resurrection, Jesus explained to his Jewish followers that they shouldn't be Jewish anymore because he was just fulfilling the law and that was it. It was filled up. Um, and it was finished. So origin kind of goes in that direction, but it's still very important for for origin that Jesus teach something resembling Gentile Christianity at some point because they're trying to account for the break between Christianity and Jewish practice. And um, so origin does a little bit of it, whereas for Augustine, I'm not making any of this up. This is also in um, the Contra Faustum. Augustine's Jesus is so Jewishly pious that the reason... Does anybody know what day of the week Jesus dies on? Friday. And what day of the week does Jesus rise on? Sunday. So what day didn't he do anything on? Aha! Coincidence? I think not. It's, he, he's so Shomer Shabbat that he... I'm not... This is in the text... Um, that he, he knew that lifting up his body would be work, and that's why he made sure to die before the onset of the Sabbath, and he did not rise until Sunday. Nobody else says that. Nobody else says that. He's very smart. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.